Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson Skulle jag så bra som mig Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores Karlsson, yeah. Karlsson, Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by a guy who's hoping we can keep these off-season 32 Beats episodes coming as consistently as Andrzej Kopitar's around 70-point pace seasons. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and once again, psych just kidding, we're going to be handing it over to Ben Burnett as he talked to LA Kings expert Andrew Knoll all about the Kings and this first season back in the playoffs for a team that was supposed to be in a rebuild for a while, already looking like they're going to be ready to I don't know, contend pretty soon. I guess we'll have to see how guys like Byfield and Turcotte and, you know, I guess we'll, we'll listen to what Andrew has to say and let us know if we should be excited about this playoff berth or if it's just, you know, maybe they did a little bit better than expected and we still have a little ways to go. I guess uh, Cal Peterson is going to have to step up. Uh, Jonathan Quick can't just be the starting goalie forever, right? Uh, I really hope that Cal Peterson gets going soon. I have him in my Dynasty League and this year was, felt like a setback. Uh, but once again, I guess I'll be just hoping that Andrew will help me feel better about that. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Keeping Carlson. Hope that you've been enjoying our summer series so far. Last week, Brian and I recorded a really fun episode breaking down some commission decisions that we had to make running the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League last year. And then I was talking about some other commission decisions that our listeners sent in. So that was a really fun show. I definitely recommend checking it out. We got a lot of positive feedback for that one. Thanks everyone, by the way, for the positive feedback that you gave us on that. Of course, before that, we had interviews with Joe Yerden about the Sabres, Charlie O'Connor about the Flyers, Ian Mendez, a great interview about the Ottawa Senators, and we've had a bunch more. Uh, but here we go with our episode about the LA Kings, which I'm going to bring to you in just a sec. Then we've also got Detroit Red Wings coming up soon. So yeah, we're just working through all the teams in the league. Uh, I just finished watching Tampa Bay beat Colorado, which was pretty surprising after seeing that game two. But in game three, Tampa came back. So I guess those are the two teams. Tampa and Colorado. We're going to have to wait for those interviews. But yeah, everyone else, we're going to start uh, putting the calls out and see what we can do over these next few weeks. Uh, then make sure you're subscribed to Keeping Carlson because before we know it, we're going to be talking about the NHL draft. We're going to be talking about free agency. And then, well, what's next? Then's the offseason. And before you know it, we're already looking into projections for next season and strategies so we can be successful in the 2022-23 season. But okay, what else should I say here? Uh, Keeping Carlson is presented by Dabber Hockey. It's the best fantasy hockey website. Check it out. Uh, we'd love for your, you to consider joining the ranks of all the amazing patrons of Keeping Carlson. We've been having a lot of fun on our patron Discord every single day. Andrea is running a poll of like for the patron rankings, and we're voting on the next player. Like really interesting discussions. It's been oh, it's wild. Like I, I don't think I feel this way every year where it's so tricky. After like player number six or seven got ranked, it's just like every single player that gets ranked is just like i can't believe this guy's going so high but it makes sense after the great season i guess brian and i talked about how kaprizov went higher than expected uh like you know on our last episode and since then yeah a lot of very interesting names uh so come and hang out with the patrons only a dollar a month over the summer so that's keeping carlson.com slash patron thanks again to all the patrons for supporting the show but okay i guess i've blabbed for what like two three minutes now so that seems like enough time that's the introduction for me so i'm gonna hand the mic over to ben burnett for his conversation with andrew knoll about the la kings enjoy Welcome back to the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast Beat Writer Interview Series. I am your host tonight, Ben Burnett, and joining me, 
our esteemed guest from the LA Daily News. We have Andrew Knoll to talk to us all things LA Kings. Andrew, how are you doing this fine, fine, uh, I guess it's afternoon in LA. Indeed it is. Well, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, big fan of the podcast and uh, definitely ready to get into a little fantasy implications of the LA Kings here. We love to. Oh my gosh, that's the that's an amazing thing to say. We uh we love to chat, uh, as you know if, from listening to the podcast. We are going to get into the nitty gritty, um, and we got to start, I suppose, talking about the Kings as a team that really turned it around last year. Kind of one of the surprise teams in the NHL this season. Um, they go from sixth in the NHL Honda West division during that COVID shortened season into a playoff spot in the third place in the Pacific this year. Um, I guess, Andrew, just as a general sort of direction question for you about the Kings, how do you see the front office kind of handling this offseason? Um, do you see there being room to shake things up? Do you expect a group, of, a vote of confidence from the GM? Um, the Kings do have some money to play with, but also a lot of players who need contracts. So so where do you see this offseason going? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is still a very forward-looking offseason, still a very forward-facing franchise. I don't see them making a huge move. Um, uh, pretty much the tenets and principles that Rob Blake has laid out all along the way, however vague they may have been, as you see the moves that he's made, you see that you know they, they were accurate. He's always looking to make improvements for the team. If he's going to give up assets, he wants things in return that are reasonable cap hit and have some term on the contract. I think we saw that last season with the moves that he made with the exception of Alex Edler, which was a bridge move that paid off. Uh, and they're going to continue to do that. I don't see them um, dipping into the open market and paying the premium for a guy who's in his late 20s or older. I don't see them mobilizing a ton of prospects and really going all in. But if the right guy is there in the right area of need, and I think they do have a couple real clear areas of need, both on the top level and you know organizationally, then you know they're, they're going to pull the trigger. As you said, they do have some latitude to have a couple of guys that are in line for raises. And obviously Adrian Kempe is the big one. He's going to get a nice payday, probably be making three times what he made last year on his next contract. And then Mikey Anderson's another guy, uh, even though he's an RFA and it's essentially under team control, they haven't decided if they're going to go the bridge deal route or look long-term yet. And if they do go long-term, that's going to cost them a pretty penny too, but they should still have, room under the cap to make one more addition after signing those guys and then some other kind of lower priority FAs that they have. And so if you were to, if you were a gambling man and you you had to, you had to guess where they might go uh, with that extra money, where they might be looking, you know, if, if everything broke right and they got their pick, um, where would you expect they would be wanting to put that extra money? Well, I think they definitely want a first line left wing. And uh, this is a little bit of a throwback because if you look at the nascent stages of their championship teams, you know, as they were first getting back into the playoffs. Dean Lombardi was taking every swing he could to bring in a first line left wing. Alexi Ponikarovsky, Marco Sturm, who is now the coach of the Ontario Reign here um, and was Todd McClellan's assistant for a couple of years. They brought in Dustin Penner. Um, just on down the line. They tried different guys. They tried calling up Loktyanov and playing him on the left wing when he was the top prospect in the organization. And now they're in that position again. They keep trying different fits there. They seem to have really firm pairings now with Kopitar and Kempe, uh, Deneau and Moore to a certain extent. Arvidsson, I think you could pen in on that line. But that top line left wing spot 
is something that they would love to go out and get. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about Debrinket, Philip Forsberg, guys that are, are broadly known to be on the market. Again, I think they would look for somebody who's in the early stage of their career, maybe on their second contract with some term left, and maybe mobilize some assets in a trade to do that. I, I do not see them paying the premiums on the open market. The other area is left defense. They're burgeoning with the right defense. Uh, but on the left side, they don't really have anybody firm behind Anderson. Bjornfoot's play fell off late in the year. He's kind of like a softly penned in there for the third pairing. They've sort of intimated that Edler and Mata, a couple of veteran guys, uh, will probably not be back, although I wouldn't rule that out entirely. They did perform fairly well last year, all things considered. Um, so, yeah, I, I think definitely left wing, lefty is where they're looking to go. They want a finisher at left wing. They definitely want a goal scorer. Um, they brought in Arvidsson. That helped them, but they need another guy to flesh it out, especially to give them a little more pop on the power play. And then we'll talk about their shooting percentage, I'm sure, several times during this. And then lefty, you know, where before I think they were looking more for a dynamic guy who could help them on the power play. Uh, now it seems like they're pretty comfortable using, you know, four forwards and one D on their two units with Dowdy running the first and Dursey running the second. So I would see them maybe pivot into something where they get somebody with a little bit more physical edge to give them another shutdown guy to play with Roy. So they would essentially have, you know, Dowdy and Anderson as a top pairing and then Roy and someone who would replace Anderson with whom he played late in the year uh, to give them to give them that kind of second shutdown pairing. So they'd be able to match up against teams that have two formidable scoring lines. You've mentioned a couple of the players that we're going to get into, and, and we'll start up front, I guess, with, uh, I mean, who else to start with but Andre Kopitar? Um, once again, leads the Kings in scoring last year, uh, as he has five of five seasons in a row now, um, posts a 67, point, uh, 67 points over 82 games, though he is turning 35 heading into next season. Unless you're going to hit me with a very hot take, Andrew, I would expect he's going to return as the, I mean, he's obviously going to return as the number one C next year, but do you have any concerns about the miles that are on, on the tank at this point for Kopitar? Not particularly. Um, the one thing I'd say though, I mean, you mentioned he's led the team in scoring the last five seasons, I think 12 of the last 14 since he's been with the team. I think a positive sign for the team overall, and this is more big picture would be that he doesn't lead them in scoring in the near future. Because he's at a very stable level. I don't see him falling off. I also don't see him exploding much, maybe a little more production on the power play. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be good for them to have somebody who could turn the corner and be that point per game guy. I don't think he's going to get back to that level. But the 60 to 70 point range, I think he can stay out for a while. His game is not based on speed. Um He's still a very effective passer. He's kind of the brain of their power play, especially when Dowdy went down. He, he absolutely was at that point. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in terms of hockey sense and detail orientation, those kind of nebulous terms that get thrown around uh, when we don't have anything else positive to say about a prospect. Well, when you've got a veteran guy like him, you've seen it and you can provide a million concrete examples and practically write a dissertation on it. He's still one of the best 200 feet players in the NFL in the NHL. I see him aging in a, a very similar way that Patrice Bergeron has, who I guess is a couple of years older than he is. Um, and so, yeah, I, I could see him continuing to produce at this level for another two, three seasons, um, obviously shouldering quite a bit of defensive responsibility. I wouldn't shy away from him, but again, as it's been for the case for several years now, we're talking fantasy. I mean, the Kings don't have a guy who you're going to spend 
uh, first, second, third round pick on unless you have some sort of unusually configured deep league or something. Uh, but as, as far as bankability goes, yeah, Kopitar is extremely bankable, and I do not expect that to change heading into next season. Yeah, that, that tracks pretty directly, I think. He, and he has been just one of those very consistent players. Like He's had some ups, and he did have a, an offseason here in the last few, but or maybe a few years back. But definitely, you're right. The Kings are not one of those teams where it's like, we're going to talk about four players in the next, you know, and the first four players we talk about are all gone in the top 100. Um, Kopitar may be their only top 100 guy. Maybe Dowdy is is sort of in that conversation as a defenseman. Um, you mentioned Adrian Kempe earlier, the who led the Kings in goal scoring last year. Um, breakout season for him. He put up 35 goals and 54 points, kind of that like Mike Hoffman, uh, you know, the guy who who is going to pot 30 goals for you, but is not going to, um, or at least to this point in, in Kempe's career, I don't want to, you know, don't want to say that he'll never hit any sort of a, a higher height, but just a guy who you expect to, to score goals, but kind of a Cy Young player, I suppose. Um what did you see in Kempe's game this year? You know, he he had the shots the year before, but he wasn't really producing at this level. What do you think it was this year that allowed him to hit that that high in goal scoring? Well, he's been working very much on his shot and his release the past couple of off seasons. And he's also been a player that Todd McClellan has really taken a strong interest in. He was a guy who was consistently mentioned as, you know, somebody who could give him more, somebody who could move into the core. Uh, he has been adulated at times. He's been kind of had his chain yanked at others where he was a healthy scratch a couple of times, two years ago, uh, actually three years ago, I just the, the, the pandemic first pandemic shortened season of 1920. It's hard to figure out what year it is now. Right. Um, and now it's finally come together for him. Will we see him come back and have a similar campaign next year? My inclination is that, he will score probably a little bit fewer goals, but be a little bit more of a playmaker. I mean, he's, he's not a, like a Vanek, Hoffman, Grabner type in terms of the distribution of his scoring on a regular basis. If you look earlier in his career, it was fairly even like in the minors and when he was scoring fewer points in the NHL as well. So I, I could see him, you know, maybe having a 30-30 type season um, somewhere along those lines. He is a guy who excels on entries, so he's going to keep his spot in the power play. He's really good about getting you in the zone and getting you set up. He can play high. He can play the wall. He can go to the net. So I would expect him to be another guy who benefits from what should be an improved power play this season. Of course, we'll talk about that because it was something of a disaster the last season and a half. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think he's not a guy that you should shy away from. But at the same time, if you're looking maybe at a – auto draft type situation he may be ranked a little bit higher based on those 35 goals than you'd actually want to pick him so i don't see a, a big drop off from him but i also don't see him scoring 35 goals again um and he should also keep his spot in the top six very comfortably so um yeah uh, it's good to see him a guy who was once the number one ranked prospect in the king system and that they had high hopes for and have really put a lot into developing uh, finally starting to, to put his game together and realize it and great for him too, because it was a contract year. Exactly. Uh, funny how that works, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I think that Kempe is one of those, uh, one of those players who, 
you look at the goal totals and if you're in a team if you're in a league like the keeping carlson league the keeping carlson ultimate patron fantasy league uh that is a league that really rewards goal scoring so kempe was was very solid in uh in the couple this year but um in categories leagues things like that maybe a bit overrated because he doesn't really offer quite as much in the uh the assists and and such um nice little shooter though it's been a good player to see develop alongside kopitar um, you, you alluded a little bit to where I'm going with the next question as we look at the player who played most of the season along, uh, on the other wing with Kopitar, and that's Alex Ayafalo, the third piece on that top line who put up under a half a point per game pace, uh, 37 points in 79 games this year, still saw a great amount of power play time on ice. So I would expect, uh, Andrew, that you are going to tell me that the reason why Alex Iafalo did not put up too many, uh, kind of had a, a step back in production, in fact, from the year before, is likely to do with the fact that he is just probably not supposed to be on a top line on a contending team. I, am I in the right ballpark here? Um, yeah, I think I think that's fair. I mean, certainly not a, a fixture on a top line, but I think you know if you look at it, it, it is very popular now to play pairings, which is, I mean, something that Scotty Bowman did in Montreal this 50 years ago. But um, at the same time, you know, you, you see that quite commonly where they kind of keep two guys together that have real strong chemistry. In the Kings case, it would be Kempe and Kopitar, uh, Moore and Deneau, and then look for that third ingredient. And Ayafalo is a guy who can move comfortably between all three of the, of the top lines. So you can play him as a checker. You can play him on the top line. You can play him on the second line. What happened with him, I think there's, there's two things to highlight there, and, and you touched on both of them. Uh, one was the inconsistency of his production. At the start of the year, he would have been a fantastic waiver wire find because he was on pace for 36, 37 goals at one point. But then he had, I think, 20 games where he was just totally dead. Didn't score a goal. I think he may have had one point. Um, then late in the season, he had a shoulder injury that, Certainly limited him in the playoffs. I'm not sure exactly when he sustained it, but that probably factored in also. Um, so you have two things there. One is the fact that he was such an amazing value at the start of the year. That kind of rippled through the rest of the Kings. If you look at it, Trevor Moore from January 1st forward, I think was a top 20 scorer in the NHL. Deneau was right there with him. They really took Deneau took off probably sometime in December, more right after the new year. So these were guys that you could kind of scavenge on waivers and get a big push from. Will they spread it out over the next season? In Ayafalo's case, I don't think so, but I do think that his production will even out and probably increase a little bit. In Morin Deneau's case, it probably will stay around the same overall numbers, just distributed a little bit more consistently and evenly. Um, you also talked about the power play, Ayafalo getting time on the power play. The fact of the matter is the Kings didn't have 10 good passers to create two good units entering the season. And then once they had a multitude of injuries, something that I thought was very much undercovered nationally and in consideration, for example, for the Jack Adams race with Todd McClellan, uh, they, then they were really thin. I mean, they, they could barely put one unit together once Dowdy was down. Um, so I expect them to have improved personnel on the power play, just having their full complement of players, potentially an addition up front, uh, maybe expanded responsibility for Kaliev getting more looks for Byfield. And at the end of the season, they used Deneau quite a bit as a net front guy, putting him in the middle, kind of he would move between the bumper and the front of the net. And uh, he was effective. So I expect the Kings power play to improve next year. And the, the last reason why is they'll have kind of a new mind behind it. No disrespect to Marco Sturm, whom we mentioned earlier, 
but they didn't perform very well under his guidance. He is now a head coach in uh, the AHL with the Ontario Reign, and they're going to bring in somebody new to run the power play. If you look at the first half of 2021, the shortened season, the 56-game season, the power play was excellent. So Todd McClellan's teams have usually been pretty good on the power play. So there are some things to build off there. They just need the personnel. And maybe once they have it, we'll see less time for IFL on the power play. But he's still a very effective player, five on five. The last thing I'll say about IFL, I know this has gotten a little long for a guy who was essentially a third liner last season, um, is that, you know, he's probably the guy who would most likely to be moved if they needed to clear up some cap space for a bigger move. The reason being, I think his cap hits a little north of $4 million, even though he's a trusted player and they were very happy to give him that contract. Um, you know, he's the guy essentially that they would be replacing. Like you said, he's not maybe an ideal fit for the top six on a very competitive team. If somebody like that becomes available and they need the wiggle room to bring him in, then we might see him go out. But, you know, that isn't a reflection on him in any way, shape or form because the organization and the coaching staff has the utmost confidence and trust in him. It's just, you know, a circumstantial thing where the numbers have to work. That, um, yeah, that is a very thorough Alex Iafalo answer. And I think that it does sort <laughs> of, it hits on all the points, right? Like Alex Iafalo being on that top unit is just probably a bad sign in general. I do remember very distinctly that that stretch where the Kings power play was just tearing up the league uh, yeah. in 2021. And it's just, um, it was one of those things where it felt unsustainable, and then it went to bottom of the league, as I recall, in the the back right. half of that season. And it wasn't shocking, I guess, but I figured that the the truth was somewhere in the middle. I guess when Drew Doughty goes down for you know half of the season or whatever, though, it's it, like you said, it, it became tough to ice uh, a single top unit. Um, you mentioned Alex Kaliev in there, and I'll I'll ask you a little bit more about some sort of the younger the younger generation in a second, but. For does he seem like the obvious um, reinforce like internal replacement to sort of uh, upgrade that top unit going into next year? Possibly. I mean, he he saw time with both units. Um, his shooting percentage was not strong last season, but I don't think there's anybody in the organization who's thinking that you know he's going to continue in that five six percent range, whatever it was. Uh, that have to take a look at the actual figure because he has a very dangerous shot. He's got a great release. He has the poise to hang on to it, change the angle and pick a spot. He's a shooter. The problem was, and the reason that he didn't go in the first round and the Kings were able to trade up in the second round, something that's benefited them considerably in recent years between, you know, maneuvering to, to get Calia maneuvering to get Pinelli last year and other guys who could make an impact for their team in the near future um, was that he? the other areas of his game were just not strong. His play without the puck was was poor. I mean, there's no other way to put it. He has made big strides in that area. And if the Kings were still a building team, let's say, you know, they finished sixth in the division last year and everything was still talking about potential and promise in the future, I think he'd probably given a, be given a shot entering the season in a top six role. As it is, he had some ebbs and flows last year. Late in the year, he didn't didn't exactly impress in terms of the details of the game, I, I think he'll be given another year or so to sort things out, you know, see extended duty on the power play, maybe move up, play more third line than fourth line like he did this year. Although he did see a little bit time in the top six as well with injuries and, and COVID related absences. Um, so I, I think he'll, he'll be brought along in a measured way, but within two or three seasons, I definitely think he'll be 
a top power play unit fixture and a guy who will play regularly in their top six. That's good to know. And and I think that it's um one of the players, I mean, there are several interesting players, obviously, on this on this Kings team. Um we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the other young guys here in a second. I guess we'll we'll circle back a little bit. You've mentioned um that second line for the Kings a few times now, and, and you've mentioned Victor Arvidsson, who uh, looking back on last year was the big swing for Rob Blake and the Kings uh, heading into 2022. Uh, came in with high expectations after a couple of injury-plagued seasons in Nashville, and then finished with 48 points in 66 games, which gives him a very Victor Arvidsson-esque 60-point pace. Um, obviously, he continued to struggle with injuries a little bit this year. Uh, in a way, this this kind of looks like exactly like what Victor Arvidsson would do in the average season in Nashville. Um, and I would have guessed, you know, heading into last year that the reason why the Kings were bringing him in was to take over for Ayafalo on that top line and hopefully add some speed, add some forechecking and and sort of give a new dimension for for Kopitar to play with. But then Arvidsson winds up sticking on that, like you mentioned, that that I'd say, I guess, not resurgent, but surgent. I, I don't know. The the breakout <laughs> season for Phil Deneau and Trevor Moore. Um, Emergence, I guess, we'll go with. Yes, yeah. sure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I have a feeling the Kings are feeling pretty okay about that Arvids, or the Arvidsson investment, especially given the cost was so low. Um, is that your read? Do you see them continuing with uh, with how things went at the end of last year, going into 2023? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, you know, they did try him early in the year. Um as a replacement for Alfalo, he was playing with Brown and Kopitar early on. Uh, that didn't really stick. I mean, they had their own thing. They basically could could read each other in their sleep, and he was trying to figure it out when they did put him with Moore and know. I mean, all three of them clicked really well. In the long term, I think Moore and know probably had a little bit more natural chemistry, but Arvidsson was a big part of it also, and uh, I, I don't see them moving there. And It's interesting in your – your lead up, you described it as a low cost move and also a big swing. And you're right. It was both. And that kind of speaks to a little bit about your earlier question about Rob Blake and his modus operandi and that, you know, he, he's very shrewd and he's, I, I don't want to use the word frugal because that kind of has a connotation with cheap or something, but uh, you know, he, he does look for value in deals. And with Arvidsson, you look at it. Yes. There were some concerns with injuries and that continues to be the case. He had back surgery and he won't be ready until, you know, very close to the start of the season, it appears. Um, but at the same time, you look at the cost of acquisition, the cap hit, the term. He's a perfect little player to have in there for two or three years and then reevaluate. So, um, you know, th- that paid off famously. Obviously, a lot is going to hinge on how he recovers from his surgery and how the overall mileage goes. Obviously, he's a little bit smaller guy who plays a very confrontational game, both in the sense of, you know, taking guys on with his skating and going to the net, absorbing physical punishment. And, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough to get a thousand or 1200 games out of a style and a body like that, but he's the kind of guy who, who might be able to do it. So I do expect him to see him back on that second line this year and, uh, you know, hope he has a, a speed of recovery and a strong off season. Yeah, he's one of those players when he, he kind of pops off the screen. I remember watching him when he first came over in uh to Nashville and I he's a little he's a little guy. You you'd see him speeding around on the boards like making plays and you're like, "Oh, there's Phil Forrest. No, that's the that's the new guy." And he doesn't obviously have Phil's shot, but he um, you know, he's just entertaining. He pops off the screen. 
Yes. Absolutely. And when, when they brought him in, I said, this guy is a good fit for McClellan's system, especially the first year when everything was just tempo, shot volume, tempo, shot mm-hmm. volume. Um, they've, they've reined it in a little bit since then, but I still think he gives them, you know, a guy with a shooter's mentality, which they need. They don't have too many of those guys uh, and somebody who can create tempo, which is something that's very big in their system. And then, of course, we have to talk about uh, Phil Deneau and Trevor Moore, both of the both of whom finish right around 50 points on the year um, pace wise. And I think Phil Deneau, there's not much more to say about it, really. Like, that's what he was brought in to do. He was exactly uh, what the Kings could have hoped for, I would imagine. You know, he he really legitimizes that second line. And, and for my money, like that makes them a team that has a ceiling that is or not maybe not a ceiling but that that can make the playoffs and and not look too uh out of place you know take the oilers to seven games um but to me trevor moore was one of the biggest surprises of the season um you know i don't even know what to say really but except that i just didn't see a guy like trevor moore coming into the league with you know 60 games under his belt at the age of 25 or 26 coming up the Leafs system and then uh, turning into a guy who was fantasy, like a very useful fantasy asset uh, later this year. Um, what did you see from Moore this season that helped him become one of those, uh, one of the Kings, you know, best offensive producers in 2022? So I think in some ways, both players have a similar dynamic in that they illustrate the difference between value and production. Because prior to last season, they both had tremendous value. Deneau was a very strong checking center. As a third-line guy, he was finishing sixth, seventh in the Selkie voting. That's almost unheard of. You pretty much see top six guys, top line guys getting those votes. And then you had a guy like Moore, who was the Swiss Army knife type player that played all three positions up front. He could kill penalties. He could chip in on the power play if you really needed him to, you know, in the event of an injury or something. Was a strong player five-on-five able to generate pace, able to generate tempo, um, different things like that. But, you know, you look at the early part of his season, he was probably the most snake bit player in the entire NHL. I mean, he was pinging posts like he was getting paid a bonus to do it. And, um, you know, the, the same thing with Deneau in the, the early part of the season. And then when they got their legs under him and they started working together, they found that they were pretty like-minded people and, uh, you know, both on and, and, and off the ice surface. So, uh, that, that chemistry just built and built and built. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them repeat their numbers from last year. Again, if for no other reason than that, the first couple of months of the season were pretty much a throwaway for both guys. So, you know, the production that they had was condensed into a short period of time. You give them a full 82 games. I, I could definitely see them repeating it. And with the no, like you said, his value goes uh, well beyond because he's a very strong face-off guy and between him and Kopitar, the minutes that they play, that really limits the other team's offensive capability. And that was even the case when you had a team that saw all six of its opening night defensemen go down at one point. They had 14 different D that they used this year. So it's not like they had this phenomenal back end or lights out goaltender. No, the two centers were really the fulcrum of their, of their, their defensive operation. And I say that on a fantasy show, of course, but uh, Philip Deneau plus 14, I can see that number going up. Kopitar minus six, definitely see that number going Mm. up next year. And, you know, those are considerations in most pools, I think. Sure, yeah. Um, Definitely Deneau is a player who, uh, yeah, like you said, is somebody who can has just raises that ceiling and and allows them, I guess, to – 
Exactly. To to blanket the other team with with two lines and, and turns them into a legitimate a legitimate threat. And that was exciting to see, I guess, for the uh for the Kings this year. Um probably a little bit ahead of schedule, I would say. And and that's why I want to bring up some of these players, these young guys who uh, I think most Kings fans probably heading into the year were like, if things break right, uh, we'll be very excited about like where Quinton Byfield, Arthur Kaliev, Velarde, Kupari, like these guys who they will be probably where the excitement winds up coming from. And instead, the team goes and makes the playoffs and kind of uh, I think there's a comparison to the Rangers to be made there. And I'm sure that the Kings were watching the Rangers make the Eastern Conference final and just salivating a little bit, seeing what you can do with a team that is made up of these really, um, really solid veterans up front. And then with the, the youth injection sort of in the middle six and, and starting to come on. And, and so, I mean, there's a lot to be said for all of these guys, but I guess what I'll look, uh, I'll, I'll start with just talking about going into next year. When you look at those guys who have yet to really break out those younger players up front for the Kings, who do you think has the most, the highest chance to be uh, a fantasy impact player in 2023? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you reel off all those names and they've really had this turnaround without their big picks making rain for them. I mean, Byfield obviously, uh, you know, has a big setback, breaks his ankle in the preseason. Uh, He had a stint on the COVID list as well. We haven't seen Alex Turcotte very often. He came up for a cup of coffee, I think, what, six six or eight games. I'd have to take a look. Kupari has been used mostly in a defensive role. He's played some wing. Brant Clark obviously spent last season in the OHL. So, and then Gabe Velarde, who comes in as the 2C two years ago, struggles there, comes down. Now he learns the wing. They're in the process of converting him into a winger. So if you look at their marquee picks, those guys really haven't made a contribution for them yet, or at least not a very strong contribution. So I like we talked about Kaliev somewhat already. He's a guy that I think has every opportunity to move up in the lineup, make more of an impact both on the power play and five on five. And obviously Byfield, the same thing. They don't want to rush him along. They don't want to crush him with expectations or anything like that. They've done, a, I think, a very good job kind of towing the line between giving him permission to play his game, be himself, assert himself, but also telling him, you know, you don't have to go out there and do everything on your own. You have a support system, you have teammates and that sort of thing. So, you know, will he make the leap forward this year? That remains to be seen. I think that just him getting a full 82 games as opposed to, you know, an ephemeral stint in 2021 and last year's on, off, on, off stuff that happened to him mainly because of injuries, that would be a big step forward in his development. In the long term, I mean, we see the physique, we see the kind of touch that he has, we see the kind of power he has. He can be a force in the middle, um, but they're, they're not going to rush him along. So will we see it this year? My guess is probably not, but just getting him in the lineup for the full 82 would be just a, an enormous stepping stone for him. And then the next year, I think, is where we might see his real capability. Yeah, it is. it is kind of a shame. I guess like the Kings making the playoffs this year does kind of – um, alleviate the pain a little bit, but I, I feel like if the Kings had come in and and laid a bit of a stinker this past year, um, the Byfield injury would have been a real would have just cast a pall over the entire season. As it is, they kind of they do wind up with a few things to celebrate this this past season. But I mean, 
the hopes are so high for Byfield, and, and he really is the one who I think raises the ceiling of this team. I've, I've said that a few times now, but I mean, I think that this is the one where I really mean it, like where Byfield's, Byfield's uh, upside is just so incredible. And, and if they get to see that in the next few years when, when Kopitar is still within his prime, I mean, the, the sky's the limit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the long-term plan is, as Kopitar sort of ages out, Byfield comes into that 1C role. But there could be a very exciting period where they're super strong down the middle with Kopitar, Deneau, Byfield, all at or near their primes. And then you look at the rest of their depth, they still have Turcotte, who's a top five pick. Unfortunately, he did sustain another concussion in the AHL playoffs this year. That could be a, a setback for him. But, you know, he's, he's still oozing potential. They've got Kupari, a former first-round pick. They've got Velarde, who they're in the process of converting to wing, but still can play center. Um, you know, and it, you just go on down the line. They're very, very deep at center. So, you know, whether or not they make a move, if they make the right move, we could see them in a position similar to where they were during the championship years, where not only were they real strong, one, two, three, four down the middle, but then they would have one or two guys on the wing who could come in and take draws, who could move to the middle in the event of an injury and, and just really had a embarrassment of riches at the, the center spot. Yes. And you mentioned Alex Turcotte as well. I mean, when we talk, we go five players deep in the, uh, in the prospect pool and we're just getting to Alex Turcotte. You mentioned Brand Clark as well. I think two guys who on most teams would be kind of like, uh, fans would just be talking about where they're going to sort in. And instead, it's like kind of difficult to put them into, you know, give everybody. Uh, there are too many mouths to feed, I suppose. Um, what do you see for Turcotte in terms of his path to the league? Well, you know, he came in last season. He played eight games. They did play him on the wing predominantly, if I remember correctly. Um, he got limited minutes. It was to give him a taste of the show and not burn a year off as ELC. In Ontario, he's performed pretty well, you know, 21 points in 32 games in a short season. And then last year, splitting time and also dealing with some injuries. I think he had about maybe 18, 20 points in 27-ish games. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who they still have a lot of belief in. I also think he's a guy that if other teams had a lot of belief in and they came calling, looking to make a move, seems logical like he would be their blue chip prospect to move but given the setbacks he's had especially with the concussions you wonder if his value is still that high so he's a guy who's at a little bit of a crossroads and they've dealt with that before Velarde lost a lot of development time to injury so did Rasmus Kapari when he tore his ACL you know this is not unfamiliar territory for the Kings so I'd say all three of those guys are sort of in the building back period in terms of their value, their position within the organization and that sort of thing. But the management is still very high on all of them. And, uh, you know, I would expect at least one of them to, to stick as a regular. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, that's just what, uh, for those of us who have been following, I guess, from the, from a distance, that that's what's really exciting about this Kings team is seeing these players who um, I feel like it's been a few years burgeoning where they've been one of the one of the prospect, like the the highest ranked prospect teams in the league, and and that is not going to end before this year, I would imagine. Uh, we are going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into defense and goaltending. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. Welcome back to Keeping Carlson. We are here with Andrew Knoll, 
talking LA Kings, and we are going to jump right into the defense. And I want to talk about Drew Doughty first. Of course, I don't think there's any surprise there. Um, Really a shame that he spent so long on the shelf this year for obviously for many reasons. But while researching this episode, I I was kind of shocked to learn he was on pace for his highest point total point total of his career uh, with 31 points in 39 games. That was a 65 point pace. Um, he's his highest total is 60 points. Um, two injuries this year, one to the tibia, one to the hand, I believe that kept him out for 40 games or so. Any concerns about the ability to come back at full strength for Dowdy? No, none whatsoever. I mean, the, the tibia injury early in the season, he came back from that with, with no issues whatsoever. I think he was either slightly ahead of schedule or right at the low end of the time that they anticipated him missing. And then late in the year, he undergoes wrist surgery. Uh, He was going to push it to try and get back if they made a deep playoff run, which obviously was a moot point. Um, So, yeah, I I don't don't see any issue with him. In fact, I think he's a guy who has a pretty good case as a, uh, you know, rebound prospect. Because if you look at the early part of the truncated season, he was playing really well, especially on the power play. And the team was somewhat competitive. Now, they had a six-game win streak that basically buoyed them until, you know, about halfway through the year when it was evident that they just didn't have it and they were actually getting worse. But while the games were meaningful, he was performing really well. And then the same thing was true this year. Obviously, you know, lots of ups and downs. I think he had a stint on the COVID absent list. He misses six weeks with the knee injury. And then the big one was the wrist surgery. But these are all surmountable injuries. They're not the kind of things that are going to linger. And now that the team is back competitive, he has a zest for the game that was just missing in those down years. I remember talking to him at the 18-19 All-Star game when everything had just fallen off a cliff. And I never saw him so sad in my life, you know. And I've talked to this guy many times, one of my, uh, you know, most frequently interviewed players in the entire league. And, um, yeah, he was just a different person. He was down in the dumps. I saw Nathan McKinnon a little bit like that when Colorado was in their historically bad stretch in 2017. And, uh, you know, that that's just how these guys are. They're real elite players. They want to play in meaningful games. And, you know, some people will say, oh, well, they're quitting on the team when things are going bad. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things. They're also raising their games in the big moments, in the playoffs, in the critical games in the regular season and that kind of thing. So two sides of the same coin. So the fact that the Kings are – a competitive team with some real expectations, I think will actually help Dowdy. I know there's been this, will the real Dowdy please stand up these past several years? Um, and that's that's a valid, very valid debate. And I think it's gotten a new dimension now that for once in his career, he was dealing with a significant injury, actually multiple significant injuries have been so durable prior to this. But uh, yeah, I, I think he's a guy that people can look at and say, you know what? The power play is going to improve. The games are going to matter more. He should have a little bit more help in the decor and up front. And, you know, I think he has a very good chance to rebound. So if he's lingering and falling down the board in your league, might be worth taking a flyer on as your third or fourth defenseman. That's an interesting point. I feel like uh, I'm in Canada, so I hear all the time about how Carey Price is still the best goalie in the – I mean, like, less so now. But for the past, yeah. like, three years or so, you would hear, like, well, every time it's in the playoffs, Carey Price is the best goalie in the world again. So, like, obviously, you know, you, you hear that for goaltending quite a bit, I feel like. But you don't often hear it for the players who who sort of, you know, uh, Drew Doughty trying to – 
trying to reignite the spark by getting into a fight with uh with Matthew Kachuk a few years back maybe the, you know the, it makes a lot of sense he he comes across as one of those ultra competitive guys that that have been around the league forever oh extremely passionate yeah and I still probably my favorite memory of him was uh the 10-11 playoffs you know Kopitar went down with the broken leg and they were up in San Jose and he was talking to Willie Mitchell who at that point was first of all his defense partner and second of all you know one of the senior most veterans on the team and he's telling him you know who cares about how hard you practice who cares about how long you stay on he says if I have it in the game and I'm the guy with the most endurance I'm playing the most minutes and I'm playing the best and who cares it was kind of a you know, a polite Canadian version of the Allen Iverson practice rant. That's exactly. That was yeah. just for me. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to do practice. If you hadn't said that, I was going to go practice. Uh, but yes, that's. Uh, I mean, you're endearing me to Drew Doughty a little bit, which is something I did not expect to happen on this uh, <laughs> on this call. But I'll I'll allow it. Um, the other the other player on defense. I mean, for fantasy perspective, you you mentioned Mikey Anderson earlier. Obviously, there are you know uh, Sean Walker, a guy who's like hopefully comes back and does well for the Kings next year, but. Sean Dursey, I think, is the guy in fantasy circles who is of most interest there. Um, as a defenseman comes in, or sorry, as a rookie, I mean to say, came in and put up 35 points, gets a lion's share of the power play time while Dowdy's out. A decent fantasy option for stretches this year, though, when you look at the game log, the points are certainly coming in bunches. It's kind of like you want them for the good games, but if you could, with perfect vision, you would, uh, you'd be able to stream them out of your lineup uh, last year anyway. Um what do you think goes on for for Dursey? Does he does he have a chance to be a thirty five to forty point guy again next year, even if Doughty's healthy, or um, you know, even longer term? Do you see this as being a, a situation where Brant Clark is is probably the next guy to the next defenseman at least to uh, get it, get excited about in fantasy circles in LA? So I kind of continue this trend of zooming out and then zooming back in. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the twenty twenty one season. They lose Walker and Roy on the white right side to, you know, injuries. Walker's face explodes, basically, and Roy gets banged up there. They, they lose him in quick succession, and that really torpedoed their season. You know, just losing 2D and losing 2D on the same side um, was, was a huge blow for them. It was very hard. I mean, they already had forwards who were having difficulty sorting out the back check, and they just didn't have guys to bring in. You know, they were bringing in McDermott and Austin Strand and guys that, you know, kind of were just not ready for primetime players and combined with the inexperience they had up front, it all disintegrated very quickly. Then you go one year later, and as we mentioned, they used 14 different D last year. At one point, all six of their regulars were out, and they were able to weather that storm. Part of that does go credit to uh, the two the two excellent centermen that they have in their top six, a little bit to Jonathan Quick. He certainly played phenomenal down the stretch. Um, but if you look at it, their defensive depth is – pretty amazing right now especially on the right side and that's why a guy like walker you don't know where he fits when he comes back from the injury i mean he's been a great guy to, to have around the organization uh until this year he was by f- easily their second most talented offensive defenseman the only guy you would take a look at in fantasy but now suddenly they're loaded on the right side with dowdy Dursey, spence then behind them clark faber Granz unbelievable what they have on the right side now organizationally so you know the first question is are these guys going to be up with the team the entire year next year i would say in jersey's case the answer is yes um he will obviously take a backseat to dowdy vis-a-vis the power play but he should run the second unit 
And the Kings are a team that's strong drawing penalties. So he will see power play time, just not with the top unit very frequently, obviously, you know, if everyone's healthy. And he's a guy who, who plays with a lot of confidence and has a lot of skill. And, you know, going into the Edmonton series, one of the uh, local press corps members said he was having, you know, I'll paraphrase, he was basically having nightmares about the McDavid-Dursey matchup. And although in, in one prominent case that the nightmares kind of came true, overall, I thought Dursey held his own defensively in that series and got a little bit better down, down, down the stretch. He needs to do better picking his spots to take risks. He does take some really bad risks, you know, pinching where there's just nothing there and the team's off the other way in an odd man rush, things like that. He definitely made rookie mistakes, but he made them all the way. You know, he wasn't one of those guys who was tentative or caught in between. He was trying to make something happen as his instincts get better. I think he'll be more consistent in doing that. And rather than seeing, okay, just points in bunches, you'll see points in bunches and fairly steady production. So yeah, I could see him as a 35 point guy next year. And in the long term, if you're talking about dynasty or keeper leagues, uh, you know, maybe, maybe even higher that maybe, maybe get firmly into the forties. That's exciting. I, I feel like, um, yeah, the, I guess the main thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is when Brant Clark arrives and, and I guess right. the, what, what that succession, the secession plan looks like. I, I know what succession looks like. That's a great show, but the secession <laughs> plan from, from Dowdy down to the, the future uh, on the blue line there. Do you have any sort of, uh, any theories on how we might see that play out? Well, Dowdy's under, under contract and a very hefty contract for a period of time. So I think we can pen him in for the foreseeable future. Then behind him. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very excited about Clark. A couple things there, you know, he was snubbed by Team Canada again last year, did not go to the World Juniors and get that experience. And then, you know, he had an injury late in the OHL season that caused him, I don't know if he missed the entire playoffs or most of them, but, uh, you know, getting that big game experience is something that uh, I think they'd like to, to see out of him. And then improving his skating too. He does have a pretty unorthodox stance. He gets kind of low. He's got like a knock need Pages Stoyakovich three-point shot thing going on, like uh, very <laughs> unconventional style, but uh, he does get around pretty well. He's, you know, he is mobile. He's got great sense, great vision, strong skills. So I don't think that they're going to rush him. I would not anticipate seeing him up with the big club this year, but uh, the next season, yeah, I don't, I don't think that he's going to spend too much time in the AHL, but again, you know, they've got, a real luxury now and that they have a veteran defenseman and Walker, they have two strong prospects in Jersey and Spence. And then, you know, Faber keeps, he, he's the opposite. He has had the big game experience, the NCAA level, the Olympic level twice. Now uh, they've got Grand, So that's a very healthy competition to see who slots in and where and when. So uh, long-term, I think Clark is a big part of the picture, but shorter term, I don't see them rushing him in any way, shape or form. So dynasty leagues, I mean, obviously a player with a very, very high ceiling, but maybe not somebody who is going to be an impact uh, in the short term. And that's uh, that's OK, too. Um, let's go to goaltending then. Uh, I've referred to Jonathan Quick's return to form, his resurgence um, as maybe the most surprising and and perplexing breakout of the first half of the year just a guy who i really did not uh did not think had it in him to to sort of turn it back around um turn back the clock for most of that first half um 
opposite wise, whatever the opposite of turning back the clock is, that's what Cal Peterson appeared to do this okay. year. Um, yeah. Looked like the stars were aligning for him to really take over as that, you know, at least a 1A coming into the year. I certainly drafted him, you know, very cheaply thinking that I was going to be getting, I, I thought LA might be a, an okay team. Phil Deneau might be like, I didn't think they were going to be a playoff team. I'm not trying to uh, say that I, I called that, but definitely thought that Peterson represented some good value and uh, definitely wound up having to drop him back onto the waiver wire. Um, what do you think sort of happened in the crease this year? And how do you see it going into next year? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it was kind of an unusual situation. I mean, the first thing that jumps off the page at you is that the Kings are paying over $10 million a year for their goaltending. They're, how many teams are doing that? I think Tampa Bay, Florida, and Montreal are the only three that I can think of off the top of my head. And there you have Carey Price, Vasilevsky, um, and Sergei Bobrovsky, guys that are making all that money on their own, essentially, and with a cheap backup. The Kings, on the other hand, are essentially paying two mid-level starter salaries and they kind of have two mid-level starters, but you know, with, with quick, obviously he took the reins, especially late in the year. And then the playoffs, it showed again that, you know, maybe it's better in a tandem situation teams loathe those. Now they avoid them like the plague in the playoffs. You're not going to see the, uh, you know, weeks Urbe or Rolison and Fernandez type tandem in the playoffs anymore for whatever reason. But I think it would be effective for the Kings during the regular season. So I would expect to see a fairly even split of starts again next year. I mean, Quick will be the opening night guy. But they're not going to put him between the pipes, you know, 55 plus times. There's just no way. And they're not going to keep Peterson around at that salary to give him such limited duty. So, yeah, kind of status quo there. And then they're going to have a really tough decision when Quick hits free agency the following year. Then they're going to have to evaluate, you know, is Peterson our guy? Should we keep him here? Should we give him the opportunity to retire here? They really need to assess where things stand moving forward. And the other thing is they need to get some organizational depth and goal. They've got a Czech kid that played in the ECHL this year that they think is moving along pretty well. They've got, um, you know, a couple of guys in Ontario that split time. Villalta was the main guy, but nobody that's really a surefire NHLer. So I would see them kind of, you know, they've had some success dipping into undrafted free agents, guys coming out of college mostly. They're going to keep an eye on that type of situation. And I could see them, you know, investing a second or third rounder into a guy that they think they can enrich and develop in a couple of years to give them a little bit more depth and versatility and goal. And uh, yeah, you mentioned the $10 million, uh, threshold, I guess, and being part of that $10 million goalies club. I feel like there's really only one team that you mentioned who's like, pleased with the 10 million dollar uh, right. price tag and they're in the cup finals and they're getting blasted so far right. um where we've only seen through two games game three is tonight in tampa of course um but yeah i feel like uh bobrovsky a player who i'm sure the panthers want to have bobrovsky i don't know if they want to have him on that deal and similarly with the habs and Carey price um so yeah i feel like you're basically what i'm taking from this is it's a little bit it sounds less certain now than it was a year ago. Is that, is that the sense that you have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Peterson a year ago was the opening night starter. He broke quick string of, I think, a dozen straight opening night starts. He had the $5 million a year extension. You know, the ink was just drying on that. And, uh, you know, it appeared like he was the guy that they were going to hand the keys to with quick being the sort of sagely veteran backup that would spell him when necessary, probably, you know, 30 to 35 games. 
and uh, and you know give him the tutelage he needed. Now it's totally in flux. And so, I mean, do you have any sense from being around Peterson that this is a guy who has been so good each year that he's been in the league, kind of a guy who even when the Kings were bad, he was still uh, putting up decent numbers. Do you have any sense on or expectations on how he might fare uh, or or how he might bounce back next year? Well, one of the things that I think will be interesting is to see what direction they go in with their defense core. I know that's kind of a a redirection of the question, but the reason being is that they do play such different styles. Quick is obviously, uh, you know, a, a smaller, very athletic goaltender. That's sort of Mike Richter school of goaltending. Peterson is a little bit more positionally oriented, kind of plays the blocking style a bit more. So I think, you know, if they have a defense that needs somebody to bail them out, like they have for the past couple of seasons, um, that favors quick a little bit more. If they solidify things and, you know, really beef up their structure and stay healthy, uh, then that, that favors Peterson's style a bit more. So some of this has to do with the play in front of them. I mean, as all goalies numbers do. But, uh, yeah, I, I see both of them as decent depth options. Again, we're, we are talking about fantasy purposes here. But, you know, you better have two strong goalies already, and then you're thinking, okay, I can get a third guy that, maybe a good value in my draft and he's going to be playing for a competitive team, maybe only getting 40 to 45 starts, but those might be quality starts that, that kind of augment what I've got going on, especially in leagues where, you know, you have some of these leagues where nine of the cat, there's nine categories, four of them are goaltending and, Mm. you know, two guys can really carry a lot for you in your lineup. So uh, yeah, I, I think they're kind of secondary options, not your, primary guy that you're going to look to throw between the pipes every single night, but uh, they, they, they could both make a, a fairly solid impact. And I don't see either of their numbers changing drastically, to be honest. I think they will be kind of middle of the pack statistically splitting duties. And uh, you know, you do without what you will based on your, your roster composition. I always find guys like this kind of difficult to draft because you never really know who will, it's a hot hand situation, right? So you could right. see stretches of the year where both of them are, are you know putting up great numbers and getting uh four out of every five starts um but then you know a month later and and we're back to square one um who would you who would you draft first you know if you had if you were drafting tonight and you had to pick between these two i probably would go with quick because Mm -hmm. he is effectively the incumbent at this Mm -hmm. point you know he did play extremely well down the stretch he was pretty decent in the playoffs i think he probably could have used a little a little time off in there the fact that it was seven games in 13 days was, I mean, that was tough on everybody on both teams, but especially on a goaltender like him that, that does play such an athletic style yeah. at 36 years old. Yeah. That, uh, I would not want to. I would not have wanted to feel what his body was feeling after that series. Well, and he. I mean, another guy who's just had so many runs. He's played a ton of games over the last bunch of years. I mean, he's he's put some miles on the tires for sure. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, we have a, a game three to get to, so I guess right. we'll call it here. But thank you so much for the time. You've answered all of our questions. We really appreciate uh, you joining. And uh, where should people go to follow your work? Yeah, it was my pleasure. And. Anybody can read my stuff on the Los Angeles Daily News website. Of course, we have the print edition, and we actually have 11 papers in the chain. So if you're in Southern California, we've got you covered regionally. I'm also on Twitter at at Andrew Knoll NHL. Always love engaging with followers, fans, and 
talking to great folks like you who are in the know and uh, have such a fantastic audience. So my pleasure to do the show. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Andrew. I hope we can uh, have you back another time in the future. It was, uh, yeah, it was great to chat. Anytime. Cheers. Cheers.